A reading from St. Paul's first epistle to the church in Corinth, the 12th chapter, beginning the first verse. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, are there, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gift of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The word of the Lord. A reading from St. Paul's first epistle to the church in Corinth, continuing the 12th chapter at the 21st verse. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that is lacked, that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The word of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. As believers within the church, God is most able to use us to build one another up when we're focused on loving one another with the help of the Holy Spirit and not preoccupied with ourselves or with our own abilities. This morning, our passages from 1 Corinthians concern what appears in the original Greek uh, as either pneumatikos or charisma. Often these words both are translated, though, in the English as spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Back in 2013, eight years ago, nine in a month or so, during Lent we offered a five-week course on spiritual gifts called Network. Some of you here may have participated in it, while others of you may have completed a spiritual gifts course or inventory in some other church context. There are countless numbers of spiritual gifts courses like these that churches can offer, all of them designed around the widespread conception that every Christian, by virtue of having been baptized and believing in Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, every Christian possesses at least one gift for all time. And by that is meant an attribute or an ability intended to be used to build up the church and minister to fellow believers. 
So courses like Network or other spiritual gift courses compile a list of possible abilities from about four different New Testament passages, including the one we read from today, 1 Corinthians 12. For example, it's been suggested that the following attributes are spiritual gifts that any of us might have. Administration, apostle, faith, healing, helps, word of knowledge, miracles, prophecy, teaching, tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of wisdom. These are just the ones from the passage we read today. Meanwhile, often added to the list, possibilities from three other main passages in the New Testament are gifts like encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, service, teaching, evangelism, celibacy, hospitality, martyrdom, music, discernment of spirits, craftsmanship, and so on. So courses like this run on the premise that what's lacking in the church is that believers need to discern what gift or gifts we possess so we can then exercise that gift to strengthen the church, strengthen the gift to strengthen the church, use it for God's glory. However, I have to say that the method for discerning what gift or gifts you may have according to this approach It's primarily to have people take a test or an inventory of spiritual experiences they have had or ministry they've done or any abilities other believers may have recognized or affirmed in them. In other words, it's an imperfect approach to say the least, right? It's sort of like, have you ever led a non-believer into a relationship with Jesus? If so, you probably have the gift of evangelism. Have you ever spoken in tongues? Well, then you obviously must have the gift of tongues. Have you ever given over and above 10% to your church? Well, then you have the gift of giving. Congratulations. I don't remember a lot of people in our network course raising their hand on that one. but (laughs) Do you like volunteering behind the scenes? Then you may have the gift of service. Do you have experience speaking in front of people? And do people say you do a good job of it? Well, then you may have the gift of preaching or of leadership. Now, I don't recall what the questions were for determining the supposed gift of martyrdom. That seems like sort of a one-time thing. Um, But you get the idea how these inventories work. Well, having had eight, now nine years to reflect on this. I've wondered what sort of fruit exercises like that course really bear in the life of the church. I wonder how much positive fruit there was that came from it. In other words, how many people who took that course here, or one similar to it somewhere, from it discerned some gift in themselves that they didn't previously recognize and then begin to go use it for the building up of the church? Maybe some, maybe. On the other hand, there could have been some negative fruit coming from that approach. For example, if somebody came out of the course puffed up and prideful about a gift they now believed they possessed, others could have come out feeling more confused about how they can really serve God. Still others could have felt boxed in, having their vision of how they serve God overly narrowed as to these certain specific one, two, three ways. 
So I've, these are just questions I've reflected upon. This isn't to say that the course was bad. We needn't think about it in black or white terms, right? But there are some scholars who've actually questioned this widespread conception of spiritual gifts that's become so popular, particularly over the past century. They question whether this idea that every Christian possesses at least one spiritual attribute or ability for their whole lives, whether that's actually biblical. For example, Kenneth Birding, a scholar from Biola, he's one of these scholars. He suggests that the Greek word charisma, typically translated as spiritual gift, refers not so much to an individual ability that one possesses, but instead to ministries that the Holy Spirit empowers. And this could be in a long-term ministry role. For example, if, if a catechist has a ministry of teaching, right? Or if, if someone has a ministry of serving on the altar guild. If another has a ministry of helping, helps, I guess as they call it, as a driver for St. Maddie's for seniors. If the church treasurer, the vestry clerk, has a ministry of administration. If a rector has a ministry of leading, and so on. Thinking about them as ministries, that the person may or may not, frankly, rely on the Holy Spirit for empowerment for, might actually be a more appropriate understanding of that Greek word charisma. Right. To execute those ministries would obviously draw on one's individual abilities and character, right? But ideally, they wouldn't just be relying on their own resources. They'd be reliant on the Holy Spirit for strength and direction and endurance. If so, if they do that, these would quite literally be the charismas, the gifts of the Lord, ministries to his church through believers. So under Birding's reading of the scriptures on charisma, charisma could be a long-term, even formal ministry role that the Holy Spirit empowers a believer to do. But a charisma could also be a single, spontaneous ministry, occurrence, instance, a gift of the Holy Spirit through one believer to another, that may only happen one time, on one occasion. For example, one believer could speak a word of wisdom, knowingly or unknowingly, right, to another believer. The Lord could speak something through a, through a believer to another person that they really need to hear, and that could be a one-time, spontaneous charism, gift from God. Or one believer could pray for another believer to be healed. And God could answer that prayer. Yet that believer may or might, may not ever be used by God to heal somebody again with their prayers. Or God may use, for example, Larry back there to help another person use Zoom. During the pandemic, Lord knows he would need the Holy Spirit's help to help somebody in that way, right? So that they can access church. 
But that may not mean, that may not mean that Larry then needs to serve on our AV ministry once a month, right? Sorry, Larry. As believers within the church, God is most able to use us to build one another up when we're focused on loving one another with the help of his Holy Spirit and not preoccupied with ourselves or our own abilities. Well, part of the reason this understanding of charisma is Holy Spirit-empowered ministries rather than abilities that one possesses Part of the reason this interpretation fits better with a passage like we read today from 1 Corinthians is that in the church of Corinth, problems had arisen because, precisely because, some believers there had become preoccupied with the spiritual abilities they saw themselves having. And it had borne really bad fruit. See, the impetus for Paul writing what we read today is that certain believers in the Corinthian church had been empowered, in particular by God, to speak in tongues, right? And as a result, these particular believers thought they were pretty hot stuff, right? We speak in tongues, other people don't. They looked down upon those who couldn't, figuring those people must just not be as spiritual as we are. And so these Christians focused on the gifts themselves as if they were something that they possessed, almost like it's, you know, as if it was by their merit. And that led to what? To comparison, to division, to competition within the church. It wasn't building up the church, it was tearing the church apart. And so in this passage, Paul's trying to lead them away from this mindset of being focused on themselves and their abilities and instead to shift their mindset toward one of love, of seeking God's help to love one another, making that their primary focus. If you look with me just briefly, I just want to do a brief overview. I mean, this is like a chapter and a half, but just highlight a few verses that kind of give us a sense of what Paul's argument is. In in chapter 12, verse 4, He reminds the Corinthians that there are different kinds of gifts, charisma, charisms, but the same Spirit, they're all from the Holy Spirit. But then he says that whatever the Spirit may empower one to do, the aim of it, the whole purpose must be building one another up. In verse 7 he writes, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, not for your ego to be puffed up, right? For the upbuilding of others. Down to verse 11, he writes, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. In other words, the manifestation of any gift through you is not a mark of your specialness, but of the Holy Spirit, whom all believers have. Then down in verse 15, Paul encourages, begins to encourage the believers who felt excluded, felt lesser than, by the Christians who were looking down upon them. And he does this by using an analogy of the human body. The church is the human body. He says, now if the foot should say, verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. 
And then over to our second lesson, verse 21, he continues, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We'll come back to that, indispensable. Verse 30, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? This faction of more spiritual Corinthian Christians had become preoccupied with pursuing what they saw as the greater gifts, which were the more dramatic ones, the more, what we might call the more miraculous ones, even though any gift from God is miraculous. Right? But in 31, Paul says the highest pursuit is not the dramatic or the miraculous. The highest pursuit, and frankly, what is hardest, and what we really need the Holy Spirit's empowerment for more than anything, is love. That's what we need the real help with. And that is a higher pursuit than any specific gift. When he says in verse 31, I will show you the most excellent way, the Greek there for excellent is is the sense of a higher way, like a high mountain pass. And in chapter 13, that's what he unpacks, right? He says, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels but don't have love, what good is it? I'm a resounding gong. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing, he says. If I give up everything I have to the poor and give over my body to hardship, maybe that's the martyrdom, But don't have love, I gain nothing. As believers within the church, God is most able to use us to build one another up when we're focused on loving one another with the help of his Holy Spirit and not preoccupied with ourselves or our own abilities. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be mindful of abilities and experiences we may have as we Maybe discern how God might want us to serve, particularly for any formal position of ministry that he might want us to undertake. But what I am saying is that as we engage with one another in the body of Christ, probably a much more important question than what are my gifts is what does the love of Christ look like right here? To ask ourselves, am I going about my day and my walk connected to God and yielding to the Holy Spirit so that I might be able to be a blessing to others? Am I letting Him fill my cup so that it might pour out onto others? Well, just a little more on this word gifts. Birding explains that that some of the confusion around spiritual gifts... And part of what may have led to this whole industry and theology of spiritual gifts being these abilities we possess may come from some of the confusion caused by the English language. And this is because in English, the word gift can mean two different things. If you look at the insert in your bulletin, I've included a citation from Webster's Dictionary, probably the first time I've done that, but first time for everything. Birding would want us to note that in English, the word gift 
can first of all refer to a notable capacity or talent that's either been inherited or endowed upon us, so given by God, right? And indeed, if you look lower down, both the verb and adjective forms of gift in English take on that first sense. The English verb to, to gift, you know, to gift someone, means to endow with some power, quality, or, or attribute, right? Like she's been gifted with a beautiful voice, right? And the English adjective gifted typically refers to having some great natural ability. So with the primary English meaning of gift being the sense of a God-given ability, one can understand why our minds can so quickly jump and can't help but jump, frankly, to this idea when we read that phrase spiritual gift in the Bible, we assume it is something that we possess, so we better figure out what it is, right? And yet the word charisma that is translated gift in Scripture is likely better understood in the sense of that second English definition of gift, the one with the number two by it, which is something that is voluntarily transferred from one person to another without compensation. In other words, something that's free, something that is given by God's grace alone, right, that we don't earn or merit. So a charisma refers to any gift of divine grace, any sort of gift from God. In fact, in Romans, Paul uses the word charisma to refer to the gift of eternal life as a whole. Forgiveness of sins. He used that same word charisma. He ain't talking about speaking in tongues, right? Now, perhaps there are some instances where God imparts an ability to somebody for all time until they die, right? And perhaps there are believers who have a gift of tongues or prophecy or administration for their whole lives. I don't know. But even if that's the case, it's about our mentality about it. If we begin to think of ourselves as possessing a gift, like it's the ability to hit a baseball or something, then that's the moment where we become much more vulnerable to misusing that gift or to bearing bad fruit. Because our reliance upon the Holy Spirit, if we possess it, relying on the Holy Spirit all of a sudden becomes dispensable. And that's a big problem. Just to pick on myself for an example. Right? In my case, as somebody who has the role of preaching, right? I get up here and preach 50 plus times a year. But if I get up here and preach without seeking the help of the Holy Spirit, If I write a sermon without considering what is loving and true, if my goal in getting up here is to impress people with my giftedness, right, for my own ego, well, then I might just end up doing a whole lot more damage from this pulpit than good, right? And I'm sure I have done some damage, right? As a, result, as a result of self-reliance on occasion, right? And there's some people, all they're doing is damage, right? But in addition to that motive of ego inflation infecting the ministry we do, focusing too much on the abilities or gifts we think we have can also come at the expense of developing areas of weakness, or developing capacities to love that don't actually come naturally to us, 
that might bear a lot more fruit than exercising the gift we think we have. Right? So, for example, if a spiritual gifts course tells me that I have the gift of evangelism, but that I probably don't have the gift of mercy, right, based on my own little test and my own perception of myself, but anyway, if that's what the, the, the test tells me, the results, then that, that course, that test is going to encourage me to go exercise and develop that gift of evangelism, right? Get out there and share Jesus with everybody all the time, right? When maybe what I need to cultivate is mercy. In fact, maybe any capacity for God to use me to spread the gospel would be a lot more fruitful if I was just a little bit more merciful of a human being, right? Maybe my approach wouldn't be fire and brimstone, for example, right? Or using a bullhorn on the corner or whatever, right? As believers within the church, God's most able to use us to build one another up when we're focused on loving one another with the help of his spirit and not when we're preoccupied with ourselves or our own abilities. Before I close, though, it, saying, that if we, saying that we want to be a church that builds one another up and that to do that, we need to be focused on loving one another, I mean, that's pretty general, right? I mean, love can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people, right? That word's thrown around a lot. Is it a feeling? Is it an action? Is it what Hallmark says it is? You know. But Paul actually indicates what sort of mindset such godly love comes out of. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 21, that's the second lesson. That's where he writes. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But look at 22. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So I want to just invite us for a moment to consider what sort of person you, you and I, might think, think of as weaker in the church. Perhaps it's somebody we don't think really takes Jesus seriously. Perhaps it's somebody that only comes on Christmas. Perhaps it's somebody who uh, is super-duper annoying, right? I mean, whatever, right? What sort of person might we think of as weaker in the church? Now, have them in your head. Hear this word from Paul. Paul says they are indispensable. Indispensable. That goes down like a glass of mayonnaise, doesn't it? Right? Indispensable. So maybe we should ask God to show us how such a person is indispensable to us. Why we need them for our good. How God wants to use their presence in our midst to refine our soul. To teach us how to really love like he does because he loves them. And 
And so are we engaging our time together when we do gather on Sundays or other times? Are we engaging our time together like we actually need one another? Like we need the body of Christ? Are we open to God ministering to us through one another? I'm pleased to say I think there are a lot of folks here who are. Or maybe a better way to say it is, there's a lot of times when a lot of us are that way, right? Are open to God, are coming here like we need each other. If that's how we view the body of Christ, like we need it, like we need each other, then I hope these words of Paul continue to encourage us along that path and to press into it more deeply. But if not, if we're stuck engaging church in a more individualistic way, right, as some sort of weekly transaction between us and God, I hope we'll begin to give godly fellowship a chance, even though it's difficult, even though it's awkward, even though it's not easy as 10 other things we could do with our week. That we would pray for courage to take risks for deeper relationships. Because the Lord teaches that we do need one another. Will you pray with me? Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, let us sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let us sow faith. Where there is despair, let us sow hope. Where there is darkness, let us sow light. And where there is sadness, let us sow joy. O God, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console others to be understood as to understand others, to be loved as to love others, because it is in giving that we do receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.